following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Motivation is a very powerful tool. Motivation, our motives, the things that are behind everything we do, really. Almost, almost all that we do, we, 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 found, we find it, it is rooted and grounded in, in our desires and our motives behind it. Think about our work. You know, we get up each morning. What gets us out of bed each morning? Even if we have a very difficult job or we're not looking forward to our, to our vocation, well, what might get us out of bed in the morning is just the very fact of, of providing for our family. Our, uh, the love that we have for our family drives us to go to work, even in the midst of struggle and hardship, that we might provide for our family in love and we might put food on the table. Or children, what motivates you to do your schoolwork? Right? Or maybe even your parents might give you some motivation in the form of a threat, right? A little prodding that gets you moving. But motivation is a good thing because motivation not only helps us to start a task, but more importantly, motivation presses us forward in that task. How often do, sometimes do we think, I just don't have the we, we may start something, a project or, or, or what have you. But halfway through it, we just kind of, we kind of wear down. And we just think, I don't have the motivation to continue this. I don't have the mo- motivation to press forward. And if this is the case in, in secular life and in the material world, how much more is it in the spiritual? Right? How often do sometimes we, we get bogged down with good intentions? We, we get up in the morning and we want to spend time with Christ in His Word and in prayer, but we, made a, we might have stayed up late the night before, and so our minds are, are weary. Or, or maybe one of our children gets up earlier than usual, and so we don't have that quiet time in the morning. You know, what is our motivation to press forward? Our motivation to, out of, and love for Christ that says that we cry out to God when we have, when we have a, a, a weak mind or a, a confused mind in the morning, Lord, clear my mind that I might have communion with you this morning. Or maybe we, our desire to spend time with Christ, we bring that child in and we say, let's read the word together. Let's pray together. You know, our drive to be with Christ pushes us forward. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at in our text this evening. Paul, is, Paul has spent chapter 1 describing the Thessalonians themselves. In, in fact, the first three chapters of Thessalonians, over half the book, Paul is just reminding this Thessalonian church of what has happened before he, had to get, before he was ripped away from them, before he was driven out of the city. And so he spends chapter 1 reminding them of, what, of how they responded to the gospel, how they responded to him coming, him and Silas and Timothy's coming, and the power of God that was worked among them. But now he turns in chapter 2 to himself. He reminds them of his conduct and how he behaved among them. And he's doing this in large part because it seems when Timothy, in chapter 3, we're told that Timothy brings a report back to Paul, and Timothy tells him that there are men who've crept into the church 
and they're trying to undermine his work. So Paul then shifts in chapter 2 to defending himself, really, defending his conduct, his motives for being among the Thessalonians, what, what drove him to come to Thessalonica, what drove him to, even in the much of persecution and affliction, to continue to preach the gospel among them. But here in these first four verses of chapter 2, in Paul's defense, we are given two key principles that are very applicable to us today, that drove Paul forward. These two principles are this. One, boldness in God, and two, the sincerity of the gospel. Boldness in God and sincerity, and, and boldness in the truth and sincerity of the gospel. Because I think what Paul's getting at, and what we can take from this, is that confidence, confidence in the power of God and in the sincerity of the, of the gospel is the foundation for all Christian witness and life. The confidence in the power of God and the sincerity of the gospel is the foundation for all Christian witness and life. I want to look at these in two points. The power of God in verses 1 and 2, and the sincerity of the gospel in 3 and 4. If you look with me to verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So here, Paul begins his defense of, of himself and of his conduct by telling the Thessalonians what he brought to them. Now, this word, in, he says that our coming to you is not in vain. Now, we, the, the nuance of that word is not so much that his coming was fruitless, that we came to you but not much happened, but instead the nuance of in vain is more of, of, of empty, right? Paul is saying, we did not come to you empty. We did not come to you with empty hands. And what Paul is getting at is that part of the, part of the charges that are being leveled against him are that he's being pegged as a charlatan. He's being pegged as one of these itinerant philosophers or teachers that roam around. And in, in Paul's day, they, they, would, they would try to, through their eloquent speeches and their, and their wild promises, they would get a gathering together of people, and they would lead people astray. And, but their purpose was always that they would gain something. They would either, would it be money or fame they would, they would, these people would come to a town and they would get a gathering together, but it was all for selfish motives. So the, and so these, these people who have crept into the Thessalonian church are leveling this charge against Paul. They're saying, why are you following this man? He's only out for his own selfish gain. He's, he's nothing short of, of one of these itinerant philosophers who goes around. We see them all the time. So why are you following this man? But Paul answer, he begins to answer these charges by saying, Look, you know he's calling them as witnesses, for you yourselves know, brothers. He says, we brought to you something. We brought, our hands were full as we came to you. We did not come asking that you would give us anything. And later on, Paul will even say that he worked night and day, not even asking that they would provide for his needs. But Paul here is saying, we did not come to gain from you, but we came to give to you. We came to give you the gospel. Paul's motives were not selfish. Paul's motives were not so that he might have the fame of men, but that his, that his love for them, his love for the Gentiles, this people who did not know God, who ha did not have the gospel, 
that love for them drove him and propelled him to bring to them the gospel. But secondly, Paul did not come. Paul had much affliction in his coming. In verse 2 we read, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So here we begin to see even more of the nature of Paul's coming to them. Paul not only came to them with the gospel, ready and willing to give them something, seeking nothing in return, but he came in much affliction. He references Philippi. Well, what happened at Philippi? Well, in, in Acts 16, we're told that in Philippi, Paul, Silas, and Timothy come in, and, and while they're at Philippi, we have, there's a few good things that happen to Philippi, and then, and then there's m- much persecution. But one of the things that happens is the conversion of Lydia at Philippi. And, and, since, and after the conversion of Lydia, there is a, a demon-possessed girl who begins following Paul and Silas around. And proclaiming that these men are servants of the Most High God. Well, after a few days, Paul gets annoyed at this, and he turns around, and in Christ's name, he casts out this demon from this little girl. But the owners of the little girl were were using her powers, her demonic powers, to make profit, because she, she was able to tell the future in some sort. And so these men get mad because Paul has just eradicated their source of income and their deception And so they drag Paul and Silas before the council. Paul and Silas are stripped of their clothing. They're beaten, they're whipped, and they're thrown in the prison. Now, what what puts more weight on this is the fact that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They should have been exempt from this type of treatment by their virtue of, of, of belonging to the nation of Rome. And so Paul and Silas, Paul brings up that when we came to you, Thessalonians, we did not come... In, in great array, but we came having just been shamefully treated. And not only was their, shamefully, their shameful treatment physical and emotionally damage, damaging to them, but the, the whole concept of public shame in the first century was much greater than we have today. Sure, we may, you know, we have people today who destroy people on social media, but in Paul's day, public shaming really counted to discredit the messenger. And more importantly, his message. So Paul is saying, we came to you having been shamefully treated. People would then look at Paul and Silas and think, these men are not worth listening to. These men have been beaten. These men are clearly enemies of Rome because the centurions put them up in a public display of shame and and attacked them and threw them in the prison. But, But again, Paul's using that to bolster his own integrity saying that, no, we came to you in love because even though we should have, by all accounts, just packed up and gone home because we had no credibility before men, our faith was in God. We, we did not, we had suffered at Philippi, but we had boldness in God. Boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. Paul bolsters his argument by saying, We did not come to you to gain anything from you. We did not come to you thinking that we would able to enrapture you by our our eloquent speech, but we came to you because we had boldness in God. Boldness in God, and more importantly, boldness in the gospel of God. And I think this is a, a, a very important distinction that Paul makes here. The gospel of God. 
Paul, Paul did not put anything into account of his own abilities. But he knew that the, that the gospel was God's gospel. The good news was God's good news. That unless God blessed the preaching of the gospel, that unless God blessed his work and his ministry, that, that at the same time, that men could not take it down. That, that the, the power of the gospel, the, the, Paul's success in ministry did not depend upon what men thought of him. But, and it not, did not depend upon his own abilities in and of himself, but it depended solely upon the Holy Spirit working, working in them. Paul's boldness, Paul's boldness was in the power of God. He did not rest upon the arm of the flesh. He did not seek to deceive, but it was solely upon God. He says at the end, too, we had much boldness to speak to the gospel of God amid much opposition. Again, he says, even, even though we were mistreated at Philippi, we come to Thessalonica and we still have trouble. We didn't leave it all behind at Philippi. But even in the midst of opposition in Thessalonica, even in the midst of all these things, our confidence was in the power of God for salvation. We preached as dying men unto dying men. We preached knowing that, that our success was not in our gifts, that our success was not in our eloquence, but our success lied solely upon the Holy Spirit working in the people. And Paul is calling them to remind calling them to remembrance of how God worked among them. In, in the end of chapter 1, we have the great, this, this great phrase, how they turned to God from idols. So we see that God did work among them. So Paul is continuing to bolster his argument and to push aside these charges that we came to you with sincerity. We did not come to you to gain anything, but we came out of love for you. Paul's boldness not only rested in the power of God, but in the sincerity of the gospel. In verse 3 we read, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Most of these itinerant preachers or philosophers of Paul's day, this would have been their handbook, really. Deception, impurity, cunning or conniving, right? They would, have, they would have drummed up something in their minds that they thought would appeal to people, and they would have just pushed it. And we even have that nowadays, don't we? I mean, think of it. Look at, is the prosperity gospel anything different than that? You know, playing to the, to the fleshly desires of men or, or to the fears of, of, of men and women. Right? and hoping to get a gathering and, and hoping to profit from them. But Paul says, no, I didn't come to you in that way. Again, I came to you hands full to give you the gospel, not, not resting upon my own abilities. But also the message I came to you was pure and sincere. Paul, Paul had great confidence in the gospel, first and foremost, because he had divine revelation, Right? Paul was caught up to the third heaven. Paul had the, the, the experience on the road to Damascus. Paul had great revelation, divine, inspired revelation from God. And so he knew without a doubt that what he preached was true. And not only, not only did he not have confidence in what he spoke, but it was manifested and testified to with signs and miracles. 
right? That was one of God's ways of, of attesting to his, his, true, his true preachers in the Old Testament and in the beginning of the New Testament, doing these miraculous signs that no one else could have done. We think of, we, and also with, with what Jesus did, and we think of Nicodemus' testimony to Jesus, right? When Nicodemus says, we know you're of God because no one can do the things you do unless God is with them. And so the same with Paul, right? We see Paul casting out a demon in Philippi, and, and we're not exactly told if he did any signs or wonders in, Thessal- in Thessalonica, but we can probably adduce that he did. We can probably think that that by the preaching of the gospel in the first century, it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was testified to and bolstered by these miraculous signs. Paul says he did not come to deceive. He did not come with error or impurity or by way of deception. Paul was driven. His motives were not of error. His, his motives were not to gain. His motives were of love for them. His motives were knowing that God was behind the proclamation of the gospel, that, that the Holy Spirit has empowered him to keep going, really. I mean, how many of us, after being treated like that at Philippi, would have just said, this is enough, let's go home, you know? But no, he pressed on because God had given him a task. God had given him a mission, God had given him, as as the apostle to the Gentiles, this this great task of being in the forefront of it. And his love for those who did not have the gospel and did not know God drove him to that. Paul did not doubt for one moment the truth of the gospel. And even though you and I do not receive direct revelation from God, and you you and I don't get caught up to the third heaven, we still can have great confidence in the Bible, in the Word of God. We can still, in our day and age of pluralism, right, and in our day and age where people will always say, there's no objective truth, right? Your truth is good, and I have my truth, and if we meet in the middle, that's good, but what works for you is fine. But no, we can have confidence in the Bible because of the power of it, because of the testimony of the Spirit to it. We, we don't need direct revelation to have confidence in the Scriptures. We don't need direct revelation to know that the gospel which we preach is sincere and true and right, and it is the power of God to salvation. We can look through history. We may not have the kind of miracles and signs that Paul did in his day, but we can look through history and see how how God has worked through the Word, how God has brought sinners to repentance, that God has magnified Christ throughout the years by the preaching of the Word and by the testimony to Jesus Christ. Paul, was one of his motives was the sincerity of the gospel. Paul did not present the gospel as one of many options, but his conviction of the truth drove him to to stay on in, in the pure gospel. And secondly, in this section, not only was Paul driven by the power of God and his confidence in that, and his confidence in the message which he preached, Paul was also confident because he was approved by God. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
And I think here we really have our greatest encouragement, at least in, this, in these four verses. Paul was driven because he knew he was approved by God. He knew that God had called him to the office of apostle, that God had set before him this, this, this missionary work to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, to call them to repentance, to call them to faith in Christ, that God had approved him for this work. And I think a, a, a distinction needs to be made because this applies to you and I as much as to Paul. He says, as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, God did not give Paul the gospel and said, and said to him, let's see how you do. Let's see if you measure up. No, Paul was called by God. He was regenerated. He was, he was given... He was given the gospel to take to the nations because he'd been already justified, right? So all of Paul's work was rooted in the fact that he was already right with God, that his standing before God did not not stand upon what he did or what he didn't do with the gospel, but that he he could stand before God because of what Christ had done for him. Again, Paul is continuing to answer these charges against him, right? The, 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 these, these men of, in Thessalonica who are trying to disrupt his ministry are saying, oh, he's just trying to gain the approval of men. But Paul here is answering them and saying, why would I seek the approval of men? I have the approval of God upon my life. Paul knew his sinfulness. He knew his need of Christ. He knew his need for cleansing. He knew his need to be empowered by the Spirit to do all the work in which he was given to do, and he rested in the accomplished work of Christ to do that. He rested in his approval before God and not approval before men. And as you and I sit here today, it's a, it's a question that we should ask ourselves all the time. What are we resting in? Are we resting in our approval before God through repentance and faith in Christ? Are we resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf and going from there, going to all of our work from there? Because notice, Paul does not use that. Paul does not use his approval as, as a license to laziness or to, or to even antinomianism, just completely pushing the law aside and saying, well, God, Christ has fulfilled the law. I don't need to follow these things. No, instead, Paul used his approval before God as his motivation to go, as his motivation for all of his work as his motivation to please God, who ransomed his soul from the pit of hell. And Paul's motivation should be the same as our motivation. That if you are in Christ tonight, you don't have to move one inch to the left or to the right. You are approved by God. You are loved by him. And it is from that point that we go forth into our work. Because again, just as Paul had been entrusted with the gospel... We all have that same task. We have all been entrusted with the gospel to some degree in all of our individual callings as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as wives, as friends, as co-workers. We've all been given this great gift of salvation that isn't ours to keep, just like Paul came with hands full. So we go into all of our work seeking to encourage one another, seeking to, to minister to our friends, to have those hard conversations with our friends that aren't believers, saying, do you know my God? Do you know my Jesus? 
that our basis for all of our work, which was the same basis for Paul, is our approval before God. Paul here, again, he's answering these charges, but he's giving, but in response, he's, he's showing us his motivation, and he's giving us great motivation in our own lives. He ends, in the end of verse 4, we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Paul's motivation was not to be a charlatan, to gain things from men. His motivation was not to deceive. His, his motivation was out of love for them. His motivation was that he had been approved by God and that because he'd been approved by God, it is God who he works for and, he, and, and it is God whom he has his eyes upon as, as who examines his heart, Right? And, and Paul kind of, he held in both hands, one hand that he was approved by God, and he held tightly to that. On the other hand, he knew that God examined his heart. He knew that God would test his motives. He knew that he, knew that he could go about these different things, but if he had wrong motivations, that would it be honoring to God? In, in I think it's um, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about men who preach the gospel from insincere motives. Now, Paul rejoices in that in one sense because he says the gospel is going forth. But nevertheless, this should be a good reminder to all of us that what is our motives behind our gospel work, behind all of our conversations, behind all of our our disciplining of our children and and behind our our times of family worship and our conversations with our friends and our interactions with, with those who we don't know on the street or in all these things. What are our motivation behind them? For Paul, his motives were pure. He had boldness in what he did because he knew that God was behind it all, that God had called him and approved him and sent him out, just as he has called and approved all of those who call upon his name. Paul's motives were also sincere because he knew the truth of the gospel. He did not waver to the right or to the left whether whether or not what he preached was true because he had confidence. He had confidence in the sincerity of his message. Motivation in our lives are are of great importance. Because as we said earlier, it is not only that it's motivation that starts us on a task, but it is motivation that propels us forward to continue in that task. And as Paul's motives that he had boldness in the power of God, he had boldness in the sincerity of the message which he preached. That was his motivation, to go to the Thessalonians. That was his motivation, to go to Philippi. That was his motivation, to go and to work, to do all the things that God had called him to do. So as we go into our week, let us meditate upon this. Let us think, what is our motivation for doing the tasks that we do? What is our motivation is our confidence, especially in times that are hard, especially when in the middle of a task, in the middle of, of family worship, when, when minds start to wander, in the middle of, of, of sharing the gospel with a friend, when we come across a question that we maybe can't answer as eloquently as we would like to. Let us have confidence and boldness in that the gospel is God's gospel. Now, we pray and we, we pray and we beg God to, be, to, to have our interactions, that they would be fruitful. 
But we ultimately rest in the finished work of Christ, that the gospel is, is, is God's and that he will do with it as he wishes, but that we might be, we might be those instruments from which he sends forth his saving grace to the nations. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.